This week on Hacker and the Fed, we discussed a popular social media app that may have had a God credential in it, detecting and mitigating a new phishing and email takeover campaign, interesting statistics in the new Verizon data breach investigation report, and listener questions about Google's new top-level domains and ProtonMail. Hector Monsegur was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks Former ever FBI Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hackett and FBI informants participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks. It caused up to $50 million in damages. A life in the shadows. Cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. I'm Chris Tarbell, former FBI special agent, working my entire career in cybersecurity, and now a founding partner at Naxo. I'm joined, as always, by my friend and podcast co-host, Hector Monsegur. Hector's a former black hat hacker who once faced 125 years in prison for his many years of hacking under the codename Sabu. Our stories collided in June of 2011 when I arrested him and convinced him to work with the FBI. Hector is now a red teamer, researcher, and cybersecurity expert. Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. How's it going, Hector? Oh, man, that was great. That was very energetic. Thank you. Uh, thank you. We're <laughs> shot right out of a cannon. Yeah. Oh, man. I'm, I'm, listen, I'm excited. Now I'm, now, now I'm excited. High energy episode of Hacker in the Fed <laughs> this week, Hector. Yeah, man. I'm doing, I'm doing very well, my friend. How about yourself? I'm doing good. Again, enjoyed our conversation to this point. So uh, I know it's uh, going to go well for the rest of the episode because we got high energy and we're ready to go. Got some good stories. Uh, anything happening good at work for you this week? Just busy. And I'm sure that every person in the audience already knows. I mean, my answer is always I'm super busy. Yeah. Uh, I'm looking forward to a vacation, ladies and gents. So if you guys have recommendations of vacation places, please feel free to just send us an email. Oh, yeah, that would be nice, to, especially if uh, anyone wants to send us like a, a free hotel room or a free, uh, free house or something like that. That'd be nice. Sure. And I'll let you know once I, I come out of uh, seclusion and like the kidnapping scenario. <laughs> Maybe we'll go on vacation together. You know what? I'm totally down. I enjoy traveling with you. Yeah, it's fun. Well, do you remember that one time? And this might get this might sound really off, ladies and gents. Just bear with me. But it was one time where we traveled somewhere. Uh, I believe it was Florida, and we had a, like a hotel right at the beach. Remember that Miami? We were in Miami. Oh, was it Miami? It's either Miami or Fort Lauderdale. One I think it was. Two. I think it was Fort Lauderdale, and the hotel we were at was like right at the ocean, man. And we just sat on the balcony and just sat there. Oh no, it was Boca Raton. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that that was nice. The weather was beautiful. Um, yeah, that was a, that was a good event too. Yeah, it was a great event, but it was that that's me felt like a life-changing experience, man. It was so peaceful. I was like, really? wow, I need more of this in my life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's good. So, I uh, I traveled this last weekend with my wife. We went out to Utah. Ooh. Whew, man, after traveling, I uh <laughs> I just it takes it out of me soon. I'm getting maybe I'm really too getting old, uh, you know. It's yeah. just too much. Well, what's the worst part of traveling for you? Uh the non-direct flights. Oh, we we no. had a layover at one point that was like six hours, yeah, that's and so cool. yeah, it's just too much. Like we, well, it's funny going there. We had you had a layover that was an hour, but our plane showed up like fifty five minutes late, literally running through the airport type uh, get to the plane because mm -hmm. the backup flight wasn't for another twelve hours, which isn't good. And then coming back, we had a six hour layover where I rented a car and just went and got breakfast just to get out of the airport. 
Yeah, I was actually going to ask you that. In in that case, what would you do? Do you just chill at the airport or you just breeze off? No, nah, we got a car and went and had breakfast and just to get out of the airport and all that. But it was yeah. like, you know, the, doing the math, we could have mm. just driven back in the time that it took us to wait for our flight. <laughs> yeah, no, it sounds it sounds like that's probably something you guys could have did for sure. Yeah, so I mean, we didn't think it through. So, you know, they had our luggage, so it would have been a, a pain in the butt. But yeah. There's a thing called skipjacking. Have you ever heard of that that site? Yeah, yeah. I, I've I've been curious about it. Have you ever tried it? No, I'm too nervous to. Uh, they, mostly the airline gets very mad about doing it. So for the, in the audience that don't know what it is, so you use this this app and it finds a flight. Let's say you're going from New York to Phoenix, uh, but the cheapest flight is actually New York to San Francisco, but it has a layover in Phoenix. Um, so what they do is they, they book you on the, the flight to San Francisco, um, and you just get off and you, you don't take the second leg, which the airlines don't like, but I also don't understand why going just two thirds of the way across the country is cheaper than the, you know, taking both flights. So there's a whole bunch of reasons why those prices are jacked the way they are. And in that, in that specific scenario laid out, at least one of the reasons that I found, and I'm sure there are plenty more. And if there's anybody in, in you know, there's a pilot out there that could give us more feedback, that'd be great. But what I learned is that a lot of those flights are kind of pre-computed or, or kind of prepaid, quote unquote. It's not the right terminology. I know I'm wrong. But basically, they're expecting a certain amount of traffic to that location. And so, you know, in some cases, uh, because of that, it may be cheaper to kind of go the route that you went through. Now, for the person or people that discovered the technique that you mentioned, right? What was it called? Skipjacking? Yeah, I mean, that's the app that, that, that does it. It's oh, okay, okay. Yeah, I, I thought it was another name for it. That's why I was like, okay. But yeah, whoever figured that out, you know they saved thousands and thousands of dollars prior to people really picking it up and abusing it. You feel me? Yeah, no, I agree. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm a, I'm sort of a, a rule-following guy. So uh, to, <laughs> to think about getting off a plane and, and missing a flight is uh, just doesn't sound, it sounds strange to me. Yeah, it's uh, it's bugged out, man. But that's cool, though. I'm glad you went to Utah. I, you know, I actually want to go to Utah one day. I've never been there, and every time I see pictures of like the uh, like the open space and the you know wilderness or whatever, it's, it looks beautiful. It's absolutely gorgeous. I mean, it was like 75 degrees, but there's still like snow-capped mountains right there. So. Wow, look at that! It's a, it's a, it's a really cool place. So I enjoyed it. So I've been there a few times. So I enjoyed it every time I went. So shout out to any Utah listeners. Uh, jealous that you get to be there all the time. Oh yeah. Super jealous. So first story we're going to cover, Hector, is one that you sent over, and the title is Former Exec at TikTok's parent company says Communist Party members had, quote, a God credential that let them have access to America's data. Kind of a scary thought. We've talked about it before on the pod about TikTok having access to people. Would you uh, would you think of this one? Well, we've had several episodes where we've discussed uh, TikTok as an example. I'm not going to be out there and, and just target TikTok because they are a Chinese-based company uh, or app, right? Um, that's, not, that's not my angle here. But we've discussed many times, in fact, we even had a episode where we discussed that at least one state uh, or one uh, local government had banned apps like TikTok from being accessible or used on government phones, right? And, government and, phones, government networks, government everything. Yeah, government everything. And so even at that point, I agreed with it. I, I believe you agree with that as well. Mm -hmm. But it was very provocative because a lot of folks 
felt that, well, that felt that I was maybe too much overreach by the government, the local government, and so on. Um, so this is always going to be a debate. Uh, it's always going to be about privacy. It's always going to be about security. And of course, you know, the more, you know, like libertarian that you are, you know, you may find issue with the government telling you what you can and cannot use, right? Um, so with that all being said, my friends, this article came out. Obviously, we don't have specific details. What we know is what was being reported. If this is in fact true, that Chinese government employees had access, backdoor access to TikTok data, that is a, a massive implication. Um, and that is a massive violation of privacy. And I think that if the government is not looking at this story or have not investigated it, they probably are or will. Well, I mean, it's a little bit more weight than just a simple accusation. It's a it's a court filing. So uh, the former head of engineering for Byte Data Dance in the U.S., um, which is the, the Chinese company that owns TikTok, um, he put in a legal filing in San Francisco saying that there were members of the Communist Party that, that used the data held by the company to identify and locate protesters in Hong Kong. And then those same Chinese government uh, officials had access to the user data. And, but again, uh, TikTok says these accusations are, are completely false. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's still a business, right? They're still active. They're still um, here in the U.S. So the app is not banned. And they want to keep it that way. Now, my, my interest here from a legal perspective, I know he was in law enforcement. Um, and I know that you did that for a long time and you have a, a much broader view than I do in this field. If, and, and, and feel free to just, just let me know, like, do this beyond my scope, right? Sure. But let's say that, you know, you're back with the FBI and you find out that TikTok has a backdoor for the Chinese government. Is there something that, that uh, it, it is putting on your table? You're part of some sort of team to kind of investigate this. Like, how do you even approach something like this? Do you go back to ByteDance? Do you go back to the Chinese government? From your perspective as a, as a, as a, as a Leo, as a LEO, what do you do? You're going to look at the app. You're going to sandbox the app and kind of figure that out. What data is coming out of the your phone and being sent back to the company that's being stored? And then, you know, from there, you only have you can only make assumptions that that data is all accessible by the company. This person, right. you know, you're then relying upon sources, and this guy, you know, becomes a pretty good source because he's the the head of engineering in in the U.S. for the company. That's pretty reliable sourcing information. Um, you're going to interview him. You're going to, you know, determine his access. You're going to determine whether, you know, is he just making these accusations because he's pissed off about something? Um, does he, is he making these accusations because he truly feels it's bad and he wants to be a whistleblower and have whistleblower protections? But, you know, you're, you're never going to, as an investigator, early in your case, go to the company and try to, you know, get the information from them because you want to gather all the facts. Sure. Um, because when you do go to the company, you want to know exactly what data is being collected to see if they're lying to you, to see if they tell you when you ask them. You want to know the answers to the questions you can answer prior to the interview to judge how truthful they're being. Well, I can't even imagine at this point, whoever is investigating this or what's the next steps, I can't even imagine or fathom like how deep this is going to go. But I saw this story and I was like, wow. That is huge. Um, I'm actually more surprised that, you know, there wasn't more buzz around this. Like, I saw some stuff on Twitter. I saw some stuff on, like, you know, news websites. But then I almost feel like it kind of died out. Maybe I'm wrong. 
do you think people just expected this? Like when it's not that shocking because, you know, you know, like we were talking earlier, the, sure. the, the Texas government has banned it. There's mm-hmm. been, you know, Trump put some stuff out when he was president about, mm-hmm. you know, not using TikTok on federally funded, you know, phones and networks an executive order, you know, so people just kind of assumed this. So this, you know, when it's, it's not that shocking. Yeah. I mean, I could, I, I could, I could understand that. And I could always understand that maybe the media, you know, felt like it was a story. It published it. It did its investigation. It's kind of moved on. There's other stories happening right now. Like, as you can imagine, the world is going crazy um, all over the place. But yeah, no, I'm looking forward to seeing updates on this story and to see actually where this goes. Um, Now, if there's actual evidence, now let's think about the worst case scenario. Let's say that actual evidence comes out that, yes, there was, in fact, a backdoor. And information is indeed being accessed by the Chinese government. Will the U.S. government then ban the application? Is that even possible here? I mean, that's such a weird conversation because there's so many different implications in that. I don't know if the U.S. government can ban it for you from having it on your phone. Yeah. Um, I mean, they certainly can ban it from being used, on, you used. know, federally used or, mm-hmm. or on devices that are federally funded or, you know, even like access points that are yeah. federally funded. Um, but, you know, looking further, you know, the article says that the, the God credential being used to keep tabs on Hong Kong protesters and civil rights activists by monitoring their location and devices, mm-hmm. their network information, SIM card identification, mm. IP addresses and communications. Mm. How's that different from like other social media here in the United States? Like That's what, exactly right. You know, is, uh, you know, what is the big difference? I mean, I guess, I guess this is saying that the, you know, they attacked the, you know, Facebook isn't using that information for <laughs> the police to go out and find people. That's a fact. I guess that's the big difference. I can answer my own question. Yeah, and I would say that there will be counter arguments, right? There are going to be people out there, especially listeners and even ourselves. We could say, well, yeah, Facebook, Twitter, etc. Um, those probably are accessible in some way by law enforcement through some sort of process. So what's the difference there, right? Why is uh, putting an emphasis on the Chinese government accessing the Chinese app, you know, a bigger deal than talking about Facebook or the other apps, right? So yeah, we could argue about this all day and there's going to be privacy folks that are going to jump in as well and say, look, any app that does not enforce um, end-to-end encryption is probably not an app you want to use anyway, right? You know, so there's a lot of different angles here. I, I think we do a whole episode on this topic. You know what would be great? Actually, uh, Chris, if we could get like a privacy expert to hang out with us for a session. Yeah, maybe we'll try that. Yeah. So uh, just uh, talking about these uh, big social media companies and data privacy, I listened to Lex Friedman's podcast this week and uh, Mark Zuckerberg was on it. If anybody wants to hear about like uh, Mark's, you know, mm-hmm. kind of view on data privacy and that sort of thing, I, I highly suggest listening to that uh, that episode. Yeah, I checked it out as well. That was actually pretty good. I mean, yeah. um, I, I felt like... I. I don't know. I'm one of those people that I've, I joke around. I thought he was a robot for a while. <laughs> and, and that's so exaggerated, right? But no, I feel like he was much more open with this interview. Uh, he was definitely answering some really good questions, uh, especially about like AI and uh, uh, you know the meta world. Cool stuff. So the next story you sent over, Hector, was uh, titled Detecting and Mitigating a Multi-Stage Attacker in the Middle Phishing and Business Email Compromise Campaign. 
Wow. Um, yeah, a so <laughs> a hell of a title, you know, uh, and, and again, for those old school computer guys, you know, uh, attacker in the middle or adversary in the middle used to be called man in the middle. It's been re renamed or rebranded, you know, that's getting between, you know, a, a target and uh, and uh, their communication channels or some way of, you know, be, being between uh, in someone's uh, line of data. So this was a really kind of a, a cool look and a dissection of a, a new attack against businesses. Um, you know, it, it's kind of dorky. Um, so we'll include uh, the link as always in the description that really kind of has some good pictures on how this is broken down. Um, but why don't you give us a little uh, go, go through, Hector, on, on what you found in this attack? Yeah, I mean, look, it's a great write-up. I mean, it's definitely like more marketing material, folks. So I expect that it's it's very Microsoft-centric. But it is a great read nonetheless because their article really discusses the concepts behind uh, now, like, like Chris said, now what is known as adversary in the middle or AITM, um, phishing, and then coupled with something called business email compromise, which, if you guys didn't know, was a major problem for a long time. I think it still is, right, Chris? Uh, yeah, we'll get into it further in the the episode, but yeah, yeah, it's 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 a it's a big problem these days. We just at Naxo just finished working a case um, wow. for business email compromise, and they're coming in all the time. Yeah, I mean, it is it it's it has some pretty decent success rates, and because of you know the way bank transfers happen, international wire transfer happen, it's sometimes even impossible to get the money back. Right, it, it really depends on cooperation on all parties. So, yeah, as, as you can imagine, if you are able to couple a business email compromise, which I'm going to keep it very simple, could look as simple as an email. Hey, John. Yeah, this is me, you know, Murphy, your partner's name here. Here's an invoice for some stuff that you haven't paid, paid us yet. Um, check out the Excel sheet. Well, you know, John checks out the email, looks at the Excel sheet. Yeah, it looks like our partner's old, you know, uh, $30 million, whatever, right? Whatever arbitrary number. They start the process, they get the heads up from whoever, and this is usually because of a bad process, maybe bad policies, or, or even a lack of validation, okay? And usually these emails have a sense of urgency, like, hey, you guys screwed up, you didn't pay us, okay? So now that you got the basic visual, this person will now transfer the money out, that money disappears into the ether, and um, the organization is, is stiffed out of X amount of dollars. That's bad, and it's effective, it works. Now... This document or this documentation by Microsoft in this case really goes into detail into a sophisticated campaign that they witnessed where there was a multi-stage attack process. And I kind of want to go through what that looks like very quickly for you, okay? Um, again, let's visualize this together. So you have an attacker that wants to target your organization. They are aware that you probably have enabled MFA, multi-factor authentication, and there are probably some security controls in place that would mitigate, you know, either you doing a wire transfer or uh, you logging into an account. They want to get access to some sort of credentials. They want to get access to some sort of portal. They need to social engineer you first. They're going to put up a site or some sort of platform in between you and them. And that platform or website is going to look very legitimate. Uh, it may look like Salesforce. It may look like, you know, uh, Chase, uh, JP Morgan. And that site will look so realistic that when you click on submit, that platform will automatically submit your password to the real website and prompt you back with your multi-factor authentication code. Now, if you're using something like uh, SMS, right, um, that's uh, plain text, 
or even uh, a, you know a one-time password app, okay, that platform is not going to ask you for that code. If you put in the code, now the attacker basically has the same control that you have or the same access that you have. They could pretend to be you at that point, okay? Now, as you move forward as into the process of maybe doing a wire transfer or looking at um, you know, some sort of resource on the page you're trying to log into, the attacker is also there. And now they have your authentication cookies, right? And I'm sure you guys know what cookies are by now, right? But basically, you have a cookie that's stored in your computer. It's used by your browser to, um, to, to uh, communicate uh, or authenticate, sorry, with uh, you know, a potential website or a web application. And now that the attacker has that authenticated cookie or cookie with the authentication code inside, they don't even need to use your password anymore. And they also don't need to fish you anymore either. Depending on how long that cookie expires or, or lasts prior to expiration, the attacker could be there you know, anywhere between an hour or months, right? If you have something like a long-term authentication cookie, the attacker is going to have long-term access to your account. Now, once the attacker has that cookie, they could log in to that site that they were targeting as you and basically run amok. They don't need to send you that Excel form no more. Now they could just log in as you and send out whatever money they need to send out. And that's pretty crazy. Yeah, I mean, there's a few things that they're doing on this particular attack. They're, you know, they're going in and adding a second MFA. Um, so they're modifying the MFA to, you know, you'll still have your either your SMS base or your one-time password. Um, they're adding another one so that they can get in in the future. So now they have their, you know, once that session cookie is it goes expires, um, they now have still have your username and password, and now they mm -hmm. also have an MFA access to your account. Oh, yeah. And that's, uh, I mean, the, the whole purpose behind that is to maintain long-term persistence, all right? And so it's effective. It works. I mean, as an attacker, when I do a red team engagement, and part of my engagement, the scoping, right, um, that that is agreed upon between my team and the clients, they'll say something like, well, we want to we want to see, as part of the crown jewels, we want to see if you're able to compromise, one, this specific host, and two, can you set some sort of long-term persistence on it without us actually identifying or detecting what that looks like? Same concept, but applied to your you know, service account here, this online account. It's pretty amazing, but this is nothing new, right, Chris? I mean, this is something that's been no. going on for quite some time. Yeah, they're just getting better at it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and we've seen the business email compromises. Like, we've worked a case where the attacker was in there for nine, ten months. Um, just waiting for you to do a, a business transaction. And, you know, there's some telltale signs. Um, you know, there's going to be rule changes made to your email where they take certain words, keywords that come in and automatically mark the email as read and move it into a, into a folder. Um, so, you know, you can do things like review your, your rule changes on your account or new folders being created. You know, most of the transactions you're going to see if if someone has taken over your email account, um, there there's going to be out to your client or whoever your your bank or something. Hey, add this person. Hey, change this account number. Um, and that's when it's about to happen when they're, they're going to try to move the money in a different way is when you see some indication like that when when there's a change. But like I said, they may be sitting there for months waiting for this to happen. Um, and and that's what makes it effective, right? The fact that they're willing to sit there for months. They're likely working on other engagements or other victims. Um, they might they might check up on your environments or, or your accounts here and there sporadically. They're not probably not going to be logging in every day, 
like I said, they're gonna, they're still going to have the, that MFA that they added to your account. I mean, check you can check on those to see if there's a new MFA been added, or you know, there are some systems out there, and I always turn these on to get a warning when any sort of system mm. change comes in that it sends it to not my email account to an, a secondary email account that this person has a different username and password, you know, to you know a Gmail account you know, or something along those lines. But you know, another good way to fight this off is the changing your password every thirty days. You know, they're they're, they're going to have to refish you to get that new password. That's right. And, you know, you bring up a very good point. If the application that's being targeted is programmed in a way that if a password change occurs, it'll invalidate previous sessions. Okay. And whenever you see a scenario, rather, you run into an application and you go into settings, you go into privacy or security, and you see that you have the option to invalidate previous sessions, that's always an area you want to investigate. Right, you don't have to sit on there and investigate every day, but definitely pay attention to that area. I know, I, I believe, like Twitter has that, and there's a couple other sites that allow you to look at uh, active sessions. Uh, Google's another one as well. You know, it's it's a great resource, definitely take advantage. But here's the thing: you change your password, it invalidates previous sessions, and you know you kind of start to mitigate this problem here. Right? It also goes back, to, you know, and, and we talk about social engineering so many, so many. I would say so much here, Chris. You know, it also goes back to being aware of the kind of links that you're clicking on, right? Because a big part of this attack path requires interaction from you, the potential victim. So if you're getting a random text message from you know, Chase or uh, whatever other bank, and it says, hey, we need to do this, or we need to log in, or hey, you have a message you need to read, and it's not coming from an official bank number, um, or it's coming from an email that looks kind of suspicious, yeah, you know what? If you want to be safe, you could just call their support line and ask them what the email's about. I do that every time. Like, so if my bank needs me to contact them, I just go to my debit card and read and use the number on back there. Um, if they need me to do something within my account, I don't check, click any links. I go through my normal login process and try to find a notification in that account. There's no reason for me to click on anything that comes into an email. You know, I, I use the contact methodologies that I, that I know to be true, and that's my normal logins. And that's my normal f phone numbers that are hard-coded on the back of my cards. Can I be honest with you, uh, Chris? I do the same exact thing. <laughs> yeah. I, I get a message. I'm like, oh, man. Well, let me go to the website. Let me follow the normal, uh, normal flow. I had, uh, I had a gentleman by the name of Tom hit me up on LinkedIn. And we we're kind of chopping it up back and forth. He wanted to link up and have like a conversation about security and so on. And he sends me a link to Canonly. I love Canonly. It's a great service. So I clicked the link and I, I, you know, I put together the, the, uh, the Zoom session and then I, I kind of wrote him back. I said, you know, you've officially social engineered me and got me to click on a link. <laughs> so uh, fun times. Just be careful what links you're clicking on, ladies and gents, please. Yeah. Another link you clicked on uh, started our relationship. There you go. So. so I think I need to click on more links then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anybody knows that story, go back to episode one where we talk about how Heckner and I met. Uh, but yeah, Hector clicked on a link and I got his IP address and now we have a podcast together. There you go. See how life works. We are extremely happy to partner with Believe.me. Not only is Believe.me a great company to work with, their product is easy to use and provides a great service for those of us who are serious about our cybersecurity. 
Hector has used Delitney long before starting the podcast because of Delitney's proven track record for removing our private information from over 750 data brokers. Hector's praise of Delitney has convinced me to start using their services too. We talk about personally identifiable information, or PII, being stolen on the show all the time. Every week, there's a new breach we discuss with millions of records being exposed. Data brokers are out there collecting your stolen information 24-7. Cyber criminals are using your personal identifiable information for things like opening lines of credit, making purchases on your credit card, and even stealing your tax refunds. Delete Me removes private information from hundreds of data brokers. Delete.me has over 100 million successful opt-out removals completed by their privacy advisors. This service is easy to use. Your welcome email will get you started by submitting your information. Delete.me's experts will find and remove your personal information. The removal process starts and you receive a detailed Delete.me report in seven days. Then Delete.me scans and deletes all year long. Delete.me's mission is simple, to remove customers' information from search results. As you all know, and we talk about every week, this is an important step to securing your online world. Through our partnership with Delete Me, Hacker and the Fed listeners get 20% off all consumer plans with the code FED20. That's F-E-D-2-0. Go to joindeleteme.com slash F-E-D and use code F-E-D-2-0 for 20% off. That's FED20 for 20% off. This is a great service and helps support our show. Again, Go to joindeleteme.com slash F-E-D and use code FED20 for 20% off all consumer plans. Another part of this attack is once they're in their e- your email, um, they use that email to go after your contacts uh, and, and try to do a business takeover for them. So, you know, it's the attackers just broadening the network from, you know, one business email account take over to the next and then just having total control. Yeah. I mean, look, remember back in the days when you had the Melissa worm and the I love you worm, uh, same concept, right? Once the attacker's in, they have access to your contacts. They're going to take advantage of your business relationships. I, I've, I've said it already. It is effective. It definitely works. The one thing that you want to don't want to deal with, I know I wouldn't want to deal with this and I would be extremely embarrassed if someone's using my account to create or abuse business relationships uh, that would look so wrong. Um, so yeah, I, I would say definitely keep keep uh, keep your eyes open, and let's let's try to work on mitigating some of this stuff. Because you know, the thing is that yes, there's some sophistication, especially when you look at Microsoft's uh, article on this topic. The threat actors in this case were using multi-stage, um, you know, man in the middle attacks or adversary in the middle attacks. Yeah, they trial trial and error. They made they put together a, a solid campaign, but still, it still required that interaction. It still required. Um, some sort of access control issues along the way, you know, so definitely keep that in mind. And I love talking about these topics, Chris, because even if people are aware at the very least what a, what a business enterprise compromise is or business email compromises, hearing these specific nuances and the technical details, maybe even the attack path itself, I'm hoping will help them mitigate these attacks in the future. Yeah. And I think, you know, people always hear, oh, you should change your password every 30 days and stuff like that and think, why would I do that? I can't even remember one password. Why would I change everything? This is why. This is the reason why. If there's someone sitting inside your email, change simply things as changing the password um, will, will boot them out.
Microsoft, you know, we they, they offered a few uh, fixes for this problem, and, and we covered most of them, you know, revoking session cookies, like Hector said, and resetting passwords, MFA changes. Um, one thing that they um, they talk about is requiring re-challenging MFA for MFA updates. So if someone adds a new MFA procedure, um, such as, you know, uh, one of the apps or something like that, um, to require MFA for that. Um, so you have to put in the old one. And so, you know, that that would thro- stop the attacker because they're not in the middle of that transaction. Yeah. I mean, look, I also feel like it, it, is, it just goes to the developers out there listening to this. You could also put in place mechanisms to help help your users and clients prevent some of these attacks. I mean, you mentioned a great example right there. If a new device is added as a, a multi-factor authentication device, right? At the very least, the user should be aware of a notification, right? At the very least. Or adding a secondary or or second device uh, would require that the victim or the user, the client, has to, again, re-enter a new code. Now, if a victim feels like they're getting scammed and they fell for the first time around, that first round, by the time they get a second notification, they're going to be like, okay, what the hell is going on? There's something off here. There's a couple other, you know, conditional access policies for the MFA um, where, you know, it evaluates your, you know, groups or your memberships, your IP location information, device status. You know, all these things are, are good implementations for, you know, just allowing the user to know that there's changes being made to the account. It shouldn't necessarily go to the account. Um, if you think your email is being compromised, um, sending a message to that email that you're you're being compromised is not the, the best approach. And I will say, like having a secondary account, like on your Gmail account, um, like if my something happens to my wife's account or some sort of change is made, I get an email. I pick mm-hmm. up the phone and I call her. I said, "Did you do something to your account?" And she goes, "Yes." Um, so every time, um, but it's it's a good check. It's a good you know balance. That's right. You sent over another story, and this one's, uh, you know, could, could be a little bit scary. Um, it's called America's Most Cybersecure Companies. Ooh, look at uh, that. Cybersecure? Yeah. Oh. Forbes has created its newest list, uh, again, calling it America's Most uh, Cybersecure Companies. And so uh, they went through and they kind of made some criteria for, for what was used. Um, and they had a methodology. Uh, the top 200 were chosen from 12 million websites. Um, the companies with at least $1 billion in revenue and no breaches since January 2020, oh, 2022 boy. were eligible. Uh, companies were ranked on a wide range of factors such as network and application security, malware vulnerability, uh, regularity of patches, robustness of cybersecurity personnel, and even hacker chatter about possible exploits. Wow. I, I, I'm going to call bullshit. Like those are a lot of things that these that, that Forbes <laughs> could not have gone through to figure out. How do they know what the uh, robustness of of cybersecurity personnel at over twelve million websites are? I have no idea, my friend. Okay, how did they monitor what chatter hacker chatter did they monitor for as about possible exploits? Well, th- that's that's a great question because I think that if if Forbes had a proper like threat intel service or subscription they would probably get access to like telegram history or chats right uh maybe even irc chats in history but that depends on the service i've only seen a couple of services really offer that with historical data not to mention any specific companies some are great some are not so great 
Now, if Forbes cherry-picked a couple of bad actor telegrams, that's not a good uh, uh, indicator at all. But what does hacker chatter uh, have to do with the security of your website? A bunch of hackers are in a forum and they're saying, you know, oh, uh, we should hack into this. So you get negative points? Yeah, it seems like it. Maybe it's like a weighted metric. <laughs> I don't know. Regularity of patches. I mean, I don't think maybe maybe some forward facing if you did some recon. Uh, I don't think they did, uh, you know, some sort of patch scheduling for 12 million different websites. But but, but maybe, you know. To be honest with you, I, I'm, a, and I'm in agreement with you here. I think that coming up with this list might have been arbitrary, right? But I don't even call it like America's most cyber secure list. Uh, I consider it more like a hit list because <laughs> you can imagine there's a bunch of threat actor groups sitting there doing like, you know, that one meme was the guy by a tree and he's like, you know, like rubbing his hands. They're just like looking at these companies like, all oh, right, these are, you know, they're fresh uh, to target, apparently. It's a challenge. I mean, you're going to go through the list and be like, oh, you're going to tell me this is the most secure? Let's own them. So I remember back in the day, and this is, you know, way back in the day, NASA used to be the, the golden ring. If you could hack NASA, then you're doing great. Um, through history and your, your time in hacking, what were some of those golden rings of, uh, of the hacking community? Yeah, well, NASA was a, NASA's a great example. And I, I remember speaking to some folks that did security at NASA or were part of the network or part of policy. And they were very aware that attackers like to whatever, for whatever reason, target NASA networks. And the answers that I got was, yeah, but in most cases, the attackers are not really getting into anything sensitive. Most of the machines that they're compromising are researcher machines, maybe a, a project website, but these are not connected to like satellites, for example. Uh, I know of only one story, and I'm sure the audience could, could, could add some more, but I know of at least one story where a, a hacker broke in uh, or the attacker got in, and they accidentally got into something that was extremely sensitive. Now, that was like a one out of 10,000, right? Were there other companies, Chris, that you mentioned? Uh, I know that's your question, that, that I felt like was kind of like that, that golden you know, target that we could focus on as bad actors. Depends. For me, since I was using a lot of IRC in those days, I like to use uh, basically a host to bounce through. And instead of me paying for like a virtual host with a nice domain, I would break into universities because universities had a lot of bandwidth. Mm. And so I would just, I would bounce around the internet using university servers. Now, if I needed a machine to bounce through to hack into a specific government when I was focusing on that, then I would choose countries that did not have extradition laws with the target country. Um, and in most cases, I would use uh, Russia or Ukraine, uh, ironically. I could see someone sitting there just like look at this list like, okay, I have, I have some targets for sure. You talk about NASA stories. I, I was good friends with a couple of NASA cyber cops, Sean and Haley. They, they nice. were great, great investigators. We worked some cases together. Um, but man, the stories they had to tell when we sat around and have a beer. Um, it, it's crazy about what happens on NASA networks and the way people going after NASA networks. But um, again, great <laughs> investigators and made some really good cases. Well, I can only imagine there's at least a percentage of these actors, these threat, these threat actors, you know, looking for some sort of evidence of aliens. I'm sure. I'm sure that. <laughs> I'm sure that your friends told you that, right? <laughs> sure. Oh man. So one one thing, another thing I found interesting about this list is mm -hmm. the list consisted of you know the rank, the name of the company, the industry they worked in, and a list of the top cybersecurity official in title. That's a interesting list of CISOs. Um, you got twenty at, at two hundred of the the 
you know, major companies in the United States. So uh, I would have found this list very interesting back when I was an FBI agent to just find a good point of contact. Well, there's one thing I'll say. A couple of these companies here, I mean, there's quite a few that are my clients that I've personally done red teams on and I've worked on without mentioning names, obviously. Sure. And I've, for someone that's been in in some of these networks that are listening to this list, I could tell you, yeah, some of these companies are like legitimate. They have solid access controls. They they have a mature security program. Um, Their CISOs are just fantastic. They're on top of their game. Their CIOs have very strong policies and enforcing. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I would agree with, oh yeah, <laughs> I would agree with some of this list, 100%. What about the hacker chatter about the, those companies though? Well, that's a tough one. Because if I'm doing, a, <laughs> if you know, as part of the work that I do, I do have, I would look up like threat intel feeds and so on. And if I, I might see something on Telegram, like a Telegram chat. Like, hey, yeah, you know, I have, I have two employees for sale from so-and-so company. Sure. I'll see stuff like that. But it's that's not full coverage. And even the threat intel companies will tell you, there's no legitimate way for us to guarantee you that you're going to see full coverage of every single Telegram channel and every single IRC channel um, or even anything else beyond that. And forums, right? They're basically scraping what they could scrape and put together, you know, this content. And what you do with that content is as far as you could take it. And in some cases, in many cases, again, some of these companies I've worked with are very good. You're getting a ton of data, and you may be you may even identify compromised employees within 24 hours. I've seen that before, okay, um, and I've helped clients deal with that. But you know, again, you need to be on top of that, constantly searching through the archives, looking at these these uh, intel reports. But no, you're not never going to get full coverage on hacker chatter, quote unquote. I just found it interesting, and I, and I poke a little fun at it about you know hacker chatter. Like like, like they they really uh, went through twelve million different websites about hacker chatter and, and <laughs> generated a score. But maybe they did. Maybe they did. I shouldn't question it. The the, the cynical side of me should should just move on. So. Yeah. <laughs> so another article: hackers claim to have crippled Russia's banking system. So a hacker squad, hacker squad called Cyber Anarchy Squad, which is a pro Kiev. Uh, hacker Collective, uh, they're taking credit for taking down uh, Infotel, which is a Moscow-based ISP. Um, and Infotel, the takedown caused a severe ramifications for Russia's banking system because Infotel runs the automated system of electronic interactions uh, for the Central Bank of Russia. And without this network, um, there's the ability for institutions to exchange financial information on loads and transactions is severely limited. Um, so I really kind of wanted to get yours as a person that t- did hack into other countries and try to do things to cripple them. Has your view on hacking into nation infrastructure um, changed over time? Now, where I'm at in life, me personally, yeah, it's definitely changed. Obviously, that would also change if we're in the middle of a war. If the United States is in the middle of a war, more than likely, I'll put on my black hat again. I mean, that's the reality, right? Against any nation? Any nation, whoever whoever we're at war with, absolutely. Even like Mexico, dude. If we go to war in Mexico, <laughs> that's gonna suck. Because I kid, you know, I kid. Yeah, you kid. <laughs> now, nah, but, but all jokes aside, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's very effective. I'm going to assume that this organization, uh, the Cyber Anarchy Squad. I mean, they're they're pro Kiev collective, right? And so what they're trying to do is they know they're not going to be able to cripple Russia's economy. They know that. That's a, you know, that's a, 
you have to be realistic about these things. But if they cause enough chaos and they're shutting down ATM networks or they're, they're transferring funds out of Russia's reserves, um, they're able to make any sort of dent into the Russian economy. That's definitely a, uh, a disturbance in everyday Russian lives. Okay. The more you more disturbance you cause, the more disruptions you cause, the more the quality of life goes down. You know, as you're shutting down water systems, as you're shutting down electrical grids, which by the way, I do not recommend any of that. Um, because that's that's literally fucking terrorism at that point. But once you start taking down banks and banking networks and doing all that stuff, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna cause issues to quality of life and the people out there in the streets, those that are struggling or hungry or need the money to pay a bill, they're gonna be angry. Whether they're angry at you or the Russian government is one thing. That's a whole different conversation. But I can I can see attackers continuing this process against Russia for sure. What if there's like a secret you know negotiation to end this war and these guys don't know about this and in the background they're now you know Russia mistakes that this was you know done by you know uh, Ukraine mm. uh, authorities. Sure. You know that could that could fall apart. Like that that's the part I don't. You know you don't know what's happening. So throwing in your extra you know help um in, in this scenario it's not help it's, it's hindrance um you know mm. can be a problem i mean you, you see that side of it too right yeah well that's one of the lessons i've learned from you and, and, and in case the audience forgot there was a couple episodes where we, we kind of discussed uh a couple of topics here one topic in particular was uh, how would i feel about an attacker finding like a pedophile site and destroying it taking it down right um, it goes back to a conversation you and I had literally like 10 years ago or more, where you and I were kind of going to the same topic. And you said, well, Hector, at that point, you think that you're doing the right thing, but you have no idea if the FBI is already investigating that site. Now, if you're breaking in and destroy that site, you're possibly destroying evidence. You may even destroy the case. Like You have no idea the implications of what it is that you're doing. Okay, And that was a reality check for me because as, you know, listen, I was already a, an adult. I should have had enough critical thinking to see that, but it was an eye opener for me. So yeah, I would, I, I mean, I would advise folks, say, listen, if you accidentally, accidentally, oops, get into a, a sensitive network like this, you, your best option is to forward it upstream to, to your government if you're in the middle of a war, just, you know, the way Ukraine and Russia is. And so, I mean, that's my thoughts on it. How about you? What do you think? You know, yeah, I, I mean, my point is that, that you know, anarchists that go outside of you know don't know what they're causing harm in um that it can just be a problem um i you know i think these guys you know based on what side you you stand on and i think you know you and i have made a, a, a are where we stand on this very obvious um they, they they think they're being helpful but again you you don't know the full picture and so just doing things on your own can cause more harm 100 percent. in fact i mean you know, now that we're on this topic, remember we had a we had a great episode with Jeff Carr, right? Really smart guy, um, and we discussed this exact scenario. In fact, I believe he advised uh, potential hacktivists out there, like just you know, if you're going to do any operations, you might as well try to reach out um, officially to the Ukrainian government um, to see if there's any potential of collaboration, right? But you don't want to kind of go on your own because that's that's going to create a lot of chaos and havoc. And you're right. You bring up a great point. What if both countries are in the middle of a secret negotiation? And this is the hack or compromise that completely ruins that. 
So, or you know, what if they're monitoring this network and then getting a lot of good intel out of it? Um, you know, and then they now they've lost one of their major sources of in, in, inside information. Yeah, no, that's tough. You know, just like these, you know, people that go around and are fake cops or it can cause more trouble. Is all I can say. Big week uh, every year. Verizon uh, puts out their uh, data breach investigation report. It's a big, thick uh, read. I think this was well over 500 pages. Big. Um, yeah, this is the 16th year they put it out. Um, it's interesting. They just put out some numbers. Um, you know, I, I definitely didn't read the whole thing. Um, it's out there. It's uh, You can go, I will send a link uh, in the description. You'd have to put in an email address in order to download a copy. It's interesting, um, but it's, it's you know, statistics and measured every different which way of, of everything that happened last year. Um, and in the report, they analyzed uh, 16,312 security breach incidents and uh, 5,199 breaches. Yeah, those are some big numbers. I mean, you would you would think there'll be more, right? And I'm sure other companies. Well, these uh, are reported. Yeah, these are reported exactly. Yeah. But no, even that, even still, 5,200 breaches. You could imagine, at the very least, those are SMBs, right? Small or medium businesses. That's a big hit for any of those organizations. And you know what I love about the Verizon data breach investigations report always um, is that, I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a marketing report, right? It goes back to Verizon and shows off, you know, their capabilities and so on. I'm looking, I'm looking at the data and they always come out with some very useful data that I could apply in my own research. So big shout out to them for this. Now, does anything in the report thus far, Chris, surprise you? Yeah, there was a couple of ones. So, so ransomware remains one of the top uh, cyber attack methodologies. Um, it represents nearly a quarter of all the breaches. 24% of all the breaches was ransomware. That number didn't change from the year before. It didn't grow. We, we we're always talking about how ransomware is increasing and all that. As far as the reported breaches, it did not grow in, in, in numbers, as percentage-wise. Mm, okay. So, which is interesting. However, the cost of the ransomware um, breach did go up. So the medium cost per ransomware more than doubled over the past two years. And now it's at $26,000 um, is what it will cost a company to fix a, a ransomware attack. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, one of, one of the, the, the main points that I, that I really paid attention, I always pay attention to the human element. Oh, okay. In every well, of course, <laughs> the insider threat. It's your big thing this year. You have to prove yourself right, Hector, every single time. <laughs> But the human element <laughs> makes up a majority of incidents, something around 74%. Um, again, there's more context in the report, ladies and gents. Definitely check it out. Um, but 74%, according to at least Verizon here, directly you know, correlates back to the human element. I mean, that's serious. That yeah. tells us that as a society, as a people, and, uh, we kind of need to bring that number down. You know, We need to have these conversations. Sometimes they get boring. I get it. But we need to have these conversations and talk about our personal security and accountability um, so that we can start improving that. And we could bring that 74% down to 10, maybe down to 9. It might take a few years, but I think we could do it. Down to 10? Let's, let's take it down to a half, 50%. Now, that's a big, big win. So, yeah, you know, those yeah. people clicking on links. You know, it was interesting. They, they said, you know, with the growing population of the human element causing this is senior leadership. You know, the, mm. the senior leadership, they they possess the most sensitive information, but they also want to be the least protected. The, the, <laughs> they, they, they want the least, you know, I, oh, you know, I'm the president of this or the president of that. I don't want, you know, you know, secure protocols are for everybody else, not for me. Yeah. Well, security is, is cumbersome, right? Security yeah. is uh, the more secure you are, the more steps 
you have to take in order to do what it is you need to do. It doesn't always have to be that way, right? Big shout out to Google, Apple, Microsoft, et cetera, for pushing for pass keys or or web off you know, authentication. Um, there's a lot of improvements, and I'm hoping that next year's report, we're going to see some better numbers, Chris, okay? Uh, well, do you? I mean, or we might both be out of jobs if the numbers increase that big. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, no, at, the, at that point, we just got to switch it up and, and validate controls, exactly. right? That's we, true. That's we're true. still going to be busy, for sure. So we talked about the BEC, the business email compromises earlier. Yeah. Uh, definitely, according to this report, it's on the rise, mm. uh, almost doubling um, across the entire data set from the last year. Uh, and the medium amount stolen is now uh, increased to over $50,000. Yeah, that's a major number. When you look at the, the average or the median cost per ransomware, according to Verizon, somewhere around $26,000, the fact that BECs are up to $50,000 tells you a lot. I mean, it is an attack path that attackers are engaging probably more than ransomware. You have to keep your eyes open for these attacks. Yeah, we always hear about ransomware and how the you know things are crazy, clicking a link and it's bad and all that. But yeah, it's almost twice as much for a uh, BEC attack versus a ransomware. Just you know, again, median prices. And, and we're not saying that a, a ransomware attack is going to cost your company twenty six thousand. It may cost them two hundred sixty thousand. Um, but but right now, that's what the the median cost last year were. Yeah, but hey, check this out: eighty three percent of breaches involve an external actor which means about 17% are likely insiders. I wonder if that's up or down. What would you say it was? I would say it's up. Oh, of course. Yeah, of course, yeah. because uh, it's your big thing. <laughs> I would think it's up because now that we've learned about cyber insurance, now that we've learned about um, you know some states that require policies that don't, we know that how easy it is to deploy ransomware on an internal network. We know how easy it is to automate the ransomware process and payment process through a ransomware as a service uh, or through a service provider, you know, I could imagine they're going to be more rogue employees thinking about, wait, if I could get them for a quick two mil, you know what? I'm going to try it out. And that's scary. Yeah. I mean, I'll say some of the numbers on the external actors are a little surprising to me. You know, we always talk about, you know, vulnerabilities in sites and all that sort of thing. Only 5% of the breaches were from vulnerabilities. Uh, 49% were from stolen credentials. Do you know how expensive zero days are? I know. Yeah. <laughs> so that that percentage makes a lot of sense. And again, it's just a pool of uh, of incidents that Verizon investigated, but less than five percent tells us a couple of things. Let's think about this audience. Let's think about it. It means that more organizations, at least from Verizon's pool, have secured their external um, attack uh, surface to a degree that less exploits are successful. Okay, one day exploits. Basically, exploits that have been publicly released. Of course, a, uh, at least a small percentage of that are outdated systems, outdated applications, et cetera, right? That's a given. But what, that, what, what else does it tell us? It tells us that some of these threat actor groups that are sitting on serious exploits um, are probably saving those exploits for uh, sweeter targets, right? They're not blanketing the internet, uh, which we've seen recently. We've seen a few attacks with MoveIt, and uh, did you saw that big one with Barracuda, I believe? Yeah, attackers have access to exploits, and they're just spraying the internet. But that's not the case for every threat actor group. They will be selective, and they will focus on specific areas or industries. Um, so it kind of makes sense why Verizon saw 5% you know, associated to external actors, uh, rather than like um, stolen credentials and password stuffing and even phishing. 
Yeah, we just always talk about exploit vulnerabilities, uh, you know, on on the on the the show. You know, it's, it, it sounds like it's a huge problem, but really, it's the low hanging fruit. It's you know, using the same password on on multiple sites, uh, and one site getting hacked, and then they just do credential stuffing. Um, you know, we, we talk about it every time. Change your password. Change your password. Change your password. We should change the title of the show to change your password. Or get rid of passwords. We don't need passwords anymore. What? We don't need <laughs> passwords anymore, ladies and gentlemen. That's very controversial. <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> Good stories this week, Hector. Mm-hmm. Um, now we got a couple of listener questions. We always love the listeners' questions. Always. If you guys have a question, write to us at questions at hackerinthefed.com. Hector and I love hearing the feedback. Love getting your questions. So our first one here today, Hector, is from Ron. He's a self-described network guy from the northern beaches of Sydney, Australia. And he says, good day, fellas. What's your take on Google's offering the .zip domain extension, .zip domains? (laughs) Yeah, this is a fun one. And I'm sure that folks have probably heard conversations about this, especially if you're on Twitter and you're following at least one security researcher. You're probably seeing discussions on social engineering and how Google may have messed up by uh, releasing that top-level domain. Um, And I am in agreement. I don't think it's necessary. I'm not sure who would use Zip as a a website TLD. Criminals. Yeah, yeah. Uh, (laughs) Criminals. You're right. It doesn't make too much sense. Um, There is at least one attack path that I've seen um, that have been disclosed online. There may be more. Right, security researchers are awesome. They will find different ways to use this. I think I've seen another one, but I can't find a URL right now. But there's at least one researcher, an operator or no operator, um, or an operator. You know, I think it's an operator, um, and they created a concept. This was back last month when the zip domain like really first came out, and it's called ZipSnip, and it's a social engineering attack using a .zip domain and taking advantage of not only social engineering but also uh, the nuances in, in Git uh, and, and open source tools. We're going to have the URL, the website in the description. It's definitely a fascinating read because the researcher gives you kind of an idea on what an attacker may do to exploit these domains and how effective it can be. But since it is going to incorporate social engineering, it probably will require some sort of interaction. Okay. Um, so it, it's not it's not outright terrible, but uh, it's definitely going to add to the attack kits or toolkits that social engineers are using to compromise users. Yeah, I guess I didn't do any research on this to understand why they would use this one. I mean, there's so many different domains out there. Uh, any chances it's like a honeypot or something? I have no idea, brother. I mean, I, I'm not sure what Google's justification was on this. I'll be honest with you. It's possible that it was a TLD that they owned. Right, and he says, "Hey, screw it. Let's uh, let's let's release it. Let's see what happens." I mean, they're definitely making money off of it, <laughs> but there are so many different attack vectors possible with this that's going to be dangerous. In fact, the other attack path that I saw was uh, it was a proof of concept where someone created a website and it had um, uh, a web dev server on it. Um, web dev is a, is basically a protocol very similar to a web server that could be processed by Windows Explorer. And so if you were to open up your Explorer and, you know, an Explorer and your are okay, this is for Windows users, basically. If you're a Windows user and you open up Explorer and uh, you're going to see a bunch of files and file structures and trees, um, if you go to the top bar in that Explorer page or that window, 
you're going to be able to enter a URL or a file path. People usually use that portion for a file path, okay? Um, you know, C colon slash slash and path to the file you want to access or directory. In this case, you can actually put in a URL and it could be whatever.zip. And guess what, Chris? It's going to open up that page just like it's, you know, an explorer, especially if it's running a proper web dev server and, you know, can be used for social engineering. Again, it will require some sort of interaction. I, I Sorry, I, I looked it up and, and I don't even understand what Google's saying. It says, you know, well, Google marketers say the aim is to. So they, they, they not only did they release the .zip domain, they are, uh, released .mov also at the same time. Google marketers say the aim is to designate trying things together or moving really fast and moving pictures and whatever moves you. I, I don't even know what that means. I don't know, bro. That's a bad marketing department that, that try, to, try to be clever. And uh, yeah, no, I don't know. This is not good. Yeah, I, I hope it gets shut down because, yeah, I think people are going to be taking advantage of that. And just so people kind of understand, if, if you did not catching on, maybe, you know, putting a domain name that looks like a file extension um, can mislead people into, you know, doing some some bad things with that. So Oh, yeah. All right, so we got another question from Rachel. Rachel seems to be our biggest uh, biggest listener these days. She she sent a couple <laughs> questions last week, so uh, shout out to Rachel. Rachel, thanks for uh, listening Woo. to the show. So Rachel says, uh, at about an hour in on last episode, talking about security.tech standards, Chris said, quote, you start getting those proton mails. Um, so I was wondering if there's something something unfashionable about ProtonMail accounts. Uh, they get taken less seriously than Gmail. So in, in my world, uh, ProtonMail, and, and, and I've used ProtonMail, where I didn't want uh, to my, my real email to, to be brought out. And that's kind of what it's used for. People maybe that are trying to not advertise, you know, what they what they do. But they have a strong privacy policy, right? And, you know, they tend to enforce it, and they're also very transparent. So I've, I've used Proton as, as well, and I, I think the other Proton services they offer, aside from email, are pretty badass. Definitely check out their site. Unfortunately, because they're heavy, they have a heavy emphasis on privacy and probably, uh, you know, won't work with law enforcement unless of you know, special cases, um, a lot of scammers and forces will use the service. I mean, I'm sure you've seen that, Chris. I have. Yeah. So, I mean, if I was to do business with someone and, you know, they sent me over a ProtonMail account, um, I'm I'm less apt to, you know, oh, this is legitimate business. Like if, you know, and even like sometimes it's weird when at Naxo, if someone's reaching out to us uh, and they we know they're in a business and they have, even have a Gmail account. It's kind of strange to us why, you know, what are they using a personal email account? Um, how come they don't have a uh, domain account with their business? Oh, yeah. I mean, I feel the same way. Um, and I'm glad that she asked this question because um, there was a point when Gmail first came out. I'm not sure you remember that, man. That was a while back. We have the same feeling about Gmail when it first came out. Because everybody and their mother had a Gmail instantly overnight. They had a bunch of cool names. You could pretend to be whoever you want. And a lot, a ton of social engineering occurred over Gmail. And so they started implementing security features and anti-spam rules, anti-spoofing rules over the years. And Proton is going to be in the same situation. Another service that, that's used similar to ProtonMail is uh, TutaMail, right? Tuta is another good one. Um, they're solid. They have like an external app for mail, like a mail client. Really cool app. But again, if I'm getting an email from someone with, from that domain, I'm like, mm, I don't know. This is a little off. 
I'm definitely not clicking on the links. <laughs> yeah, no links for me. I'm good. <laughs> so Rachel also asked you a, a question, Hector. Um, does Hector think anonymous Sudan is actually from Sudan? Well, I would I would flip the question back to to Rachel and say, well, when I was a bad actor, did you really believe I was German? Right. The the reality is is that uh, it's attribution. We've talked about attribution so many times, Chris. Uh, nearly impossible unless people are getting doxxed, unless you know you, your IPs are being exposed and those IPs go to your literal physical location. Uh, we don't really know. We would never be able to tell if anonymous Sudan is from Sudan or they support Sudan um, or they're another threat actor group that wants to use um, the Sudanese uh, conflicts, uh, more political drama as a way to masquerade attacks into other organizations. Okay. And there's also a lot of opportunists out there as well. They take advantage of these scenarios all the time. So I can't answer that question for you, Rachel. My, my best advice for you is, um, you know, be aware that attribution is always going to be difficult in those scenarios. Um, and they probably are not from Sudan. Social engineering is a big part of hacking and trying to get people to think you're one thing when you're actually another uh, big part of hacking, the hacking community. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it's a funny story about that. I'm glad you brought that up. There was a guy, I don't want to mention his name because I think he's, he's retired from this whole scene. But there was a guy who was kind of like a famous hacker in IRC. Like he was pretty known. And eventually he got arrested. And I'm going to give you enough details. You can kind of figure out on your own, but I'm not giving you too much details. He was from South America. He got arrested. And when they arrested him, Chris, he turned out to be like a supermodel. Like he was a, like a model in real life. And... I remember someone posted that on IRC, like, yo, you know this guy that's been hacking, you know, these servers over here online on, online, and, and posting on IRC or whatever? The dude was like a model in real life. Like, he lived a double life. I didn't believe it because there was nothing in his tone or communications that even implied anything remotely to what he was doing in normal life. That, to me, was always a fun story and a, a good lesson, that attribution. I didn't even know he was from South America, to be honest with you. It really goes to show you a lot. I don't even know what a model looks like online. So I, I couldn't even tell you. I, I, thought, I thought everyone would type equally. So I didn't know you could tell. No, no, no. It's not that it could tell. It's like when they arrested me, they found out he was a model. Damn. But you're right. Like I'm teasing. No. <laughs> All right, Hector. Another great episode. Uh, new episodes every Thursday. Download and subscribe uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, yeah. uh, I had a fun conversation with you. It was uh, a good time. I look forward to next week's episode. Uh, and uh, hopefully we can uh, maybe get together this week. Yeah, brother, I'm down. Come see me. Let's do it. Sounds good. All right. Cheers. Cheers, my friend.